Let us um, read our first scripture reading, which is Psalms 93. Psalms 93 says, The Lord is king. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is girded with strength. He has established the world, and it shall never be moved. Your throne is established from old, and you are everlasting. The floods have lifted you, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring More majestic than the thunders and the mighty waters, more majestic than the waves of the sea, more majestic on high is our Lord. You, your decrees are very sure, and holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore, forevermore. The word of God for the people of God. Our next scripture reading comes from Revelation 4 through 8. Greetings and Dixology, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The Word of God. Thank you. You may be seated. So I wanted to take a minute uh, before my friend Catherine comes up to introduce her formally to you all. Um, You might have seen her here before. Uh, She was here on Chuck Day. Uh, She was playing the the washboard for us uh, with the Side Street Steppers, uh, which if any of you all are familiar with the Steppers, she is one of the washboard players for them. Um, But I met Catherine about a semester into my time at seminary. She started right around the same time that I did, but we didn't take classes together the first semester, but in the nature of things ended up at least having one class a semester together uh, where she was the most attentive and challenging and enjoyable person to take a class with that I've had uh, the experience to be with in quite some time, uh, where she asked the hard questions Uh, She asked the good questions, and she uh, never came in without a smile on her face and without at least doing 70% of the reading, which was better than the majority of the people in the class. Um, I mean, I'm a generous person, what can I say? But uh, she is also a generous person uh, when she's not playing the washboard or, um, you know, doing seminary readings. Uh, She is the director of volunteer and family experience at Le Bonheur, uh, where she makes the families of sick kids' lives as, as comfortable as they can be during that time. Uh, and so I'm very thankful for her. I'm very thankful for who she is uh, in our lives uh, as a friend uh, and as an extra voice to come alongside. And I'm very thankful that she's coming to bring the word today. So Catherine, can you come up for us? Thank you so much. What a, what a lovely introduction. It is really a privilege and a pleasure to be here with you all today. Is this volume good? Um, Well, we're going to begin with our gospel reading, 
as per usual. So um, if you'd like to follow along, our reading is today from Mark's Gospel, um, chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were immediately overcome with awe, and they ran forward to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak, and whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. Jesus answered them, you faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you are able, all things can be done for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You spirit that keeps this boy from speaking and hearing, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he was able to stand. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, this kind can come out only through prayer. The word of God for the people of God. Well, it was the bottom of the ninth on a balmy spring evening in my quaint hometown of Murfreesboro, Tennessee. My slow-pitch softball team, the Barbie Dolls, was facing off against our league rivals, the Teddy Bears, these are actual names, for a spot in the championship series. And with bases loaded and a full count, my team was down by only one run. My palms were so sweaty that the bat kept slipping in my hands as I attempted to choke up on it from the sidelines. I couldn't believe that it was my at-bat. I couldn't believe that the biggest moment of the season, and in fact, the defining moment for the fate of our team, rested on my shoulders. Me, the fluffy-haired left fielder, arguably the worst player on the team. And if you just want to envision like 10 times more hair and a daisy chain and left field, you'll have a good, a good sense of how I, how I presented at, at slow pitch softball. The rising lump in my throat made it hard to swallow. Still, though, I felt a small glimmer of hope. Earlier that same game, I'd hit a hard grounder past the third baseman and into left field. My shock wore off more quickly than that of the opposing team, all of whom had taken several steps in when I came up to bat. And my sturdy legs carried me all the way to second base before the ball was recovered. I hit a double. 
So maybe, just maybe, I thought, tonight will finally be my night. I'll hit the ball and no one will catch it. And if even one person makes it on base, um, if even one person on base makes it to home plate, we will have tied the game. And if two people make it home, we'll win the game. And for once in my life, I'll be a hero. And not just any hero, a sports hero. <laughs> the loudest, arguably worst player on the team and maybe in the league will clinch a spot for the Barbie dolls in the Little League softball championship game. I stepped up to the plate. I was ready. I choked up on the bat, adjusted my stance, and swish! The first pitch came by so fast, I scarcely even realized it, and I swung out of reflex. Swing and a miss, strike one. For the next pitch, I was a little more prepared. I saw the ball leave the pitcher's glove, lined my sights with it, swung, and swish. Another miss, strike two. By that point, my heart was practically pounding out of my chest. I wanted to be a hero so badly I could taste it. The third ball was coming my way in what seemed like super slow motion, and I swung that bat around with all the strength I could muster. Thump. The sound of the ball hitting the catcher's mitt drove it home for me. I struck out. I know, you were hoping for a different ending. <laughs> me too. <laughs> the game was over and we lost. Our season came to an end because I struck out. My cheeks burned. I slowly turned and made my way back to the dugout, dragging the bat in the dirt behind me. My teammates and I gathered around the bench, preparing to go do the high five tunnel with the girls on the other team. A few people standing near me gave me a little pat on the back or the shoulder. And when our coach walked over, I looked up at him and said, I'm sorry, coach, I blew it. Coach reached out, put his hands on my shoulders and said, it happens, it happens to the best of us. Don't worry, it's just a game. We'll get him next year. I smiled for the first time since I realized I was next up in the lineup. Later on, walking to my car with my parents, I told them I felt so bad about costing us the game. My dad, ever the pragmatist, said, one person doesn't win or lose a game. My mom said, you did your best. That's all that matters. That's all we ever ask or expect of you. And I smiled again, slowly convincing myself that maybe striking out wasn't such a big deal. Those are really hard moments for us as kids. Uh, the moments we let ourselves down or disappoint our parents, perform poorly in public, or feel like we failed a mentor or a coach. And it doesn't get any easier when we grow up. In fact, I think it probably gets proportionally harder <laughs> the older we get. Anytime we have our hearts set on accomplishing something and we fail in our efforts, that's a bittersweet moment. Even if people in our corner are cheering for us and encouraging us to try again. And public humiliation, let's face it, that's just, that's never, it's never an easy pill to swallow. And I think that's why this story from Mark's Gospel uh, was such a struggle for me the first time I read it, and continues to be a struggle for me at times. I identify a lot with the disciples as they are described in Mark's Gospel, maybe because they seem like such a hapless, ragtag band of followers or maybe because they are so candid in their uncertainties and their struggles navigating the road of what it means to follow the leader, to follow Jesus on the good way. Maybe that's just because Mark's gospel was the earliest gospel written, so the disciples haven't quite been polished up yet for historical safekeeping. But whatever the reason, I feel a great deal of empathy with these believers who suddenly find themselves far from home on a difficult journey following a man who has recently revealed to them that he will not be sticking around. 
The ending to the story of the Messiah the Jews have dreamed of will not end the way the disciples had hoped, for Jesus cannot stay. He is a warrior, to be certain, but not the kind they had envisioned. And so I find myself reading the story of the healing of this young boy, and honestly, I feel so bad for the disciples who tried to cast out the demons. Close your eyes for a moment, if you'd like, and picture this with me. It's a scorching hot afternoon in the middle of the desert, and you are gathered together with a few of your fellow travelers on the road. Recently, Jesus has given you and other disciples the power to cast out demons, heal the sick, and perform miracles for people in need. So now your reputation precedes you. Everywhere you go, crowds of people gather around you. It is flattering, and it is overwhelming, and it is absolutely exhausting, attempting to care for everyone who needs you and make a difference in their lives. So one particular afternoon, you and a few of the other disciples are holding the fort with the huddled masses, while Jesus spends time in a prayer retreat up on top of the mountain. In fact, Jesus has not gone away alone. He has taken three of your fellow travelers with him, the disciple varsity lineup, Peter, James, and John. And so the rest of you, the junior varsity, second string JV disciples, are left behind to deal with the heat and the crowds and the scribes and all the work that must be done. A desperate father cries out to you to heal his son by casting out the demon that throws him into convulsions. And you do your best, but your best is not good enough. The boy is not healed. And as if, the, as if that was not embarrassing enough, when Jesus returns, he has nothing encouraging to say to you on the matter. He calls you faithless. He laments the notion of putting up with you for much longer. How painful this moment must have been for the eager and exhausted disciples to have their teacher, their leader, their friend, the Messiah, chastise them for their best efforts. I'll admit, I want a different Jesus in this story. I want a version of Jesus that comes down from the mountains, puts his hand on the disciples' shoulders and said, hey, it's okay, you did your best. Exorcism is really hard. <laughs> Sometimes it's so hard I accidentally kill the person and have to resurrect them. So don't beat yourself up, you'll get that demon next time. I want Jesus to be the add-a-girl coach to his teammates and the comforting parent to his disciples in the midst of their failures. And I want that Jesus for them because I want that Jesus for me. But as I reflect on this scripture, I realize the tough lesson in my logic. And in fact, I realize maybe I'm more like the disciples of Mark's gospel than I even thought. Because the truth is, being a follower of Jesus is a high stakes endeavor. It's not a little league game or a piano recital or a high school test or um, it's, it's not a low stakes endeavor. It's not something that we can add a girl or add a boy our way out of. Being a disciple of Christ is the ultimate abandonment of the world as we know it. So we can help bring about the kingdom of God on earth. And the gospels are filled with examples of people who weren't ready or weren't willing to walk away from the things, the people, the traditions, the practices that were so sacred to them that they were blinded to the way. Jesus has not bend the rules for those individuals, or make exceptions for them, or comfort them in their decision not to follow after him. He can't afford to. The terms of discipleship are clear and unyielding. Set down your nets. Pick up your mat. 
Take up your cross. Follow me. At our story's conclusion, the disciples express their distress and confusion to Jesus in private, asking him, why couldn't we do it? Why could we not cast out the demon? And Jesus tells them this kind of demon can come out only through prayer. And it is perhaps here in the final line of our story that the conviction truly lies for the disciples. Jesus knows he has set out on a devastating, painful journey that will have a horrible end for him, a horrible pause of an end for him. And at this point in Mark's gospel, his sense of urgency is almost surely setting in. He knows that soon he will leave his disciples behind to go forth and carry on the great and important work they have begun together. And it is imperative that they are ready for the tasks at hand. And one of the ways we prepare ourselves for spiritual warfare is through spiritual disciplines. The gospel text shows us again and again that prayer is one of the primary ways Jesus prepares himself to care for the people, to teach his disciples, to heal those who need him, and to ready himself for his impending death. We always see him stealing away, sneaking away, coming to his father in prayer. And yet at every point in this story in Mark's gospel, or at every point up until this story in Mark's gospel, when Jesus is shown in prayer, the disciples are either absent or sleeping. The disciples are playing a dangerous game of hoping for disaster preparedness without doing the foundational work to bring it to fruition. Followers of Christ are called upon to be in a state of constant readiness and vigilance, but without proper preparation, we're sending ourselves out into the wilderness of the world without supplies and resources we need to survive. And in our case, it might not always be prayer. Spiritual formation can take place through meditation, reflection, speaking to God, quiet time, reading of spiritual and sacred texts, joining in fellowship with our beloved ones, communing with nature, music, creating quiet, sacred space for God to speak to you and through you, and anything else that prompts you to keep an open channel between us and the Almighty. We are called to meet God in the middle and to walk as active participants along our spiritual journey. But often in faith, as in life, we want the fruits of the labor without putting in the work. We want to lose weight without diet or exercise. We want to ace the test without studying for it. We want to nail the presentation without doing any research. We become overly confident in our skills and abilities, and we forget to exercise humility to draw upon the strength and the awesome power of the one who sends us out in the first place. Jesus knows the disciples will need every ounce of their strength, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, just to survive the days between his death and his resurrection. So he cannot afford to go easy on them. I believe Jesus knows too, we have a human tendency to rely on our own capabilities, to sometimes lean more heavily on our own ego than on the guiding presence of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is hard on his disciples and he is the leader they need for he challenges them to push beyond their fears and limitations and to, not, to deny faith in their own abilities such that far greater works might be done. Jesus knows that good may well be the enemy of great, and he pushes his disciples to do the vital and difficult work of their own spiritual formation. He challenges them to reach beyond their unbelief. At the end of the day, the Jesus of this story, hard, impatient, commanding, is not always the Jesus that I want, 
Maybe that's not the Jesus that you want, but it is the Jesus that we need. Sometimes we're the little girl after the ball game who needs the encouraging word and comforting hug, but other times we are adults, grown-ups on a spiritual journey who need a stern reminder that it's time to take the next step. We need to be challenged in our own spiritual formation and pushed to strive for a deeper degree of spiritual readiness. We need to be reminded that humility is a virtue and our talents are gifts to us from the divine. So I ask you, if you were one of the disciples present with Jesus that particular day, what more might you have accomplished because you were pushed to dig a little deeper? What more might we all accomplish in our own lives if we expand our faith as far as Jesus calls us to? What practices of meditation, contemplation, and care for others might we incorporate into our spiritual rhythms? What great and wonderful mysteries await us just on the other side of our unbelief. Will you join me in prayer?